Before we begin, if you're a movie maker looking to double your budget, check out Movie Maker Production Services at moviemaker.com slash MMPS. We use our network of industry contacts to get you exactly what you need for half what you would normally pay. Again, that's moviemaker.com slash MMPS. Bonjour and welcome to Movie Maker. Je m'appelle Tim Malloy. And I'm coming to you today from the Fantasia Film Festival in Montreal, where all of us speak fluent and beautiful French. But for the benefit of our predominantly American listeners, I am recording this episode in, how do you say, English. Our guest today is Eli Powers, who I met at another film festival, the Provincetown International Film Festival. His short film, Skin and Bone, is playing lots of festivals this year, including Aspen Shorts and Tribeca. And if you happen to be in Indianapolis, it's now at Indie Shorts, one of my favorite short film festivals of all. It's the story of a drifter who gets work at a farm, run by a woman who isn't what she seems. Oscar nominee Amanda Seyfried plays the farm woman, and her husband, Thomas Sadowski, one of the stars of Aaron Sorkin's The Newsroom, plays the drifter. They all previously worked together on Eli's short film, Holy Moses. How, you wonder, does Eli get such great actors? He will tell you. And we'll also tell you the whole story of how he's gone from a film student at Boston's Emerson University to traveling all over the world with his short film, which he aims to turn into a feature. What I like about his story is that while he's accomplished a lot in a short time, he isn't taking any shortcuts. His career sounds like a good roadmap for anyone pursuing film. Where can you see Skin and Bone? For now, by attending a film festival like Andy Shorts, or by checking it at horsegodproductions.com, the website for Eli's production company, where he'll keep you updated on all the places the film is showing. So now, here's Eli Powers, the writer-director of Skin and Bone. Au revoir. So Eli Powers, welcome to Movie Maker. Um, congratulations on Skin and Bones. You're on a festival tear right now with this film, right? Where has it been? Where's it going? Uh, we started at the we premiered, we world premiered at the uh, Aspen Shorts Fest. Um, then we played at River Run and then Tribeca, and then we just just wrapped up out in Palm Springs. Wow. Um, yeah, we have Indie Shorts coming up next, and then um, the Melbourne International Film Festival as well. My God! So this is getting a huge response. Yeah, it seems like it, man. Yeah. I mean, it was like, it was sort of, uh, kind of slow to start. Like our first, we got like a, a first, like initial wave of rejections. And then all of a sudden it seems like there's been kind of like a much more positive response and the, like the, you know, the things are moving. Were the rejections like, it seems like everybody starts off going with like TIFF, Sundance, um, Ken, and then they're like, oh, okay. Those didn't take us because those don't take anybody and then you get like the flood of success. Yeah, I think that's essentially what it was. Yeah, I think our we we didn't get into Sundance, we didn't get into South by for our first two. Um, you know, South by I was disappointed by. I actually had to like go off Instagram for like the the week because just every my entire like network was just in Texas right. having like an amazing time, and I was had like too much FOMO. So I was like sitting in New York by myself writing the feature version of Skin and Bone, just watching all these people like just have like an amazing festival experience but um wow. yeah and then but no I was really happy to I was really really happy to like world premiered at the Aspen Shorts Fest I think that was like a good like a really good like first kickoff for us yeah so 
a lot of times people have different reasons for making a short. Sometimes the short stands on its own. It sounds like this is, it stands on its own for sure, but it's also something of a proof of concept for a feature. Yeah, definitely. Um, I sort of have like a, a process where like, I'll trick myself into writing the feature where like when I shoot the short, I don't a hundred percent know that it's a feature. Mm -hmm. Like I don't necessarily have the script written. Like it's mostly outlined in my head that I know that the, the short isn't just the, the be all end all of it. But um, yeah, and I think while I'm shooting it, I'll become inspired. So it's like, I, I'll shoot with a limited knowledge of the characters and the story. And as we're shooting it, the feature will start to like come to me bit by bit. And then once we wrap up post-production on the short, then I'll just like really dive into writing. Yeah. yeah. You know, you're so modest. Um, when I met you at, at Provincetown, you didn't mention who's in your movie. Um, you got significantly better actors than a lot of a lot of short films have. Like I, I looked at the screen and went, wait, is that a man of savory? <laughs> <Like Yeah. that? laughs> so yeah. first I went, how the heck did they get, you know, this incredible actor? And also Thomas Sadowski, he's an incredible actor. Oh, yeah. uh, how did they get them? And then I went through your IMDb and I think I figured it out, but how did you get them? Yeah, you, you cracked you crack the, the, the code on that one. No, I, um, I met Amanda, I, I graduated Emerson College back in 2014 and started PAing on, on TED 2. It was like the big movie that came to town that summer. And it was like literally just like setting up like Ikea furniture in the office as a post, as, as a, um, you know, as a, just as a PA and then um, became, you know, someone asked me to be if I wanted to be Amanda's assistant and met her on set and we just became friends. Wow. And that was kind of like the origin of like our, our friendship and like eventual, like, you know, creative collaboration. And then obviously met Tommy through her, you know, a couple of years later. And you kept making films this entire time. Yeah, for sure. That, that was sort of has been like my process, I guess at the, at the time was like find an assistant gig, make money on that assistant gig. And then whenever that was over, just dive into a short film, lose all my money, look around for another assistant gig, find a gig, get it. And like, that was sort of the process that I was, I was doing for like several years. And you've also gotten some great assistant gigs. I mean, you were Robert De Niro's assistant at one point. Yeah. 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 That must've been incredible. Yeah. It was insane. I, I was sort of having that um, just like the weird trippy experience being at Tribeca and just thinking like, I don't know like if this is for certain, but maybe I'm the first assistant that Robert De Niro has ever had in the, in the 21 year, you know, festival, you know, like year run of, of Tribeca that's also had a film at Tribeca. So no, that was, I mean, that was just an insane experience. Just the De Niro thing on, on one element, but also like the, the David O. Russell of it all. Cause that was on, that was on joy. Yeah. That we were working on that. So, yeah, I mean, that's sort of like, I don't know. It's sort of like I went to film school graduated and then ended up just going to film school like all over again you know what i'm saying just like being on all these sets and being exposed to like um just actors and directors that just had like an incredible caliber yeah dude you're a beast in terms of like experience in terms of resume it's it's pretty incredible i mean you also worked in the paul schrader movie oh yeah yeah for sure yeah that one, one was that was amazing dude yeah um <laughs> What did you pick up on all these sets? I mean, watching these incredible directors. I think every set was just a different lesson. Um, as far as like just being able to witness, like the, I think that was like the enlightening thing for me is like, I don't know, it seems naive, but like going to film school, I'm like, oh, I'm going to go there and they're going to teach me this, like the key to directing. And then you get onto a set and you're like, oh no, this is just like people like winging it all the time. 
but yeah. people are just like winging it with their own unique voice and like their own um i don't know their own vision and their own like tactics hmm. um so i think just like pulling bits and pieces from everyone and learning that there are no rules you know that it's just like what works for you and what like people's processes are part of my process too and like directing the shorts in between the assistant gigs mm -hmm. has been in mirroring the directors on the set that I've previously been been working on yeah do you know what I'm saying so it's like after for instance like after working on like joy the next short I did I was like oh like I'm gonna feel free to like start like trying to like cultivate some sense of like chaos or like talking to the actors or like I like in improvising like you know encouraging like improvisation um uh whereas like I don't know I think after working on the weird, the weird thing is when I shot Holy Moses, sorry, I'm bouncing all, all over the place, but like sure. thinking about like Holy Moses, it, like as a reaction to working on First Reformed, just like being inspired by like some of like the religious content of that and like Paul Schrader's like continuous like obsession with like, um, I don't know, human passion and Calvinism. Uh, yeah. Calvinism and just like, I don't know, the existence of God or lack thereof and, you know, human frailty and all this stuff. Um, yeah, I think I've just sort of been like, had the very fortunate experience of, of having been like a, a sponge, you know, several to several, you know, different people. Yeah. I, I love what you said about everyone kind of just figuring it out as they go in their own way. Because this movie is so confident. Like, it, like if somebody told me that Skin Bone was made by somebody who was 65 years old and had made 100 movies, I'd go like, oh yeah, sure, I get it. Like, it just seems very secure in itself did you feel really confident as you were making it or did you feel like, oh, I don't know, um, and only got it in shape through the process of just beating things over and over and over again? Um, I felt pretty, I felt pretty confident. Um, I think mostly because it, because of COVID, because of the fact that it had been pushed two times before we shot it, yeah. which I'm really thankful for. I think if, if we shot the first time, it would have been okay. Second time would have been good. But the fact that like I had, I was forced to sort of sit with the project each time that it got pushed by the third iteration of it, I was like chomping at the bit. I was, yeah. I was really ready to shoot it and really knew what it was more than, you know, I had like months before. Yeah. One thing I really like is there's that idea in fiction writing that the very short scenes are the really important scenes. Mm -hmm. I feel like the scene where they just have dinner together I feel like that's the thing where everything changes and it's so well done because there's not that much said. There's yeah. not too much exposition, but it sort of becomes the point where she gives herself, I think, gives herself permission to do a bad thing. Yeah. Is that yeah. how you wrote it? For sure. Yeah. No. And also like, here's a, a fun little tidbit for you. That, that scene wasn't actually in the like original draft of the script. That was part of, part of me is like after like Amanda got nominated for the Oscar I was like, for whatever reason, I was like, okay, there needs to be like a dinner. Like they need to sit down and like look at each other because so much, I was getting stressed out that so much of it is like exteriors and animals and like um, bouncing around and like music that like, where's there going to be this like space for them to actually like act with each other and like sit and like hold space with each other in, in this moment. Mm -hmm. um, so that I wrote that like in between one of the, like the postponings, I wrote that for them specifically to just- oh, wow to just have a moment where she could just be really cruel with yeah. it and be really direct and really kind of when she like stares at him for that long period of time, I always sort of look at, look at that as her looking, you know, straight through his soul, which is like a, which is a terrifying 
concept for me, you know, to be perceived in like that, you know, negative way. Well, I also love just two very introverted people who don't really know how to talk to other people and they cut through all of the conversational niceties and bullshit and just figure sure. each other out really fast. Yeah. It's awesome. I mean, it's a great, the word powerful gets overused, I guess, but um, it's, it's a very affecting scene. Thanks, man. Yeah, no, I, it was fun to write too, because like I was picturing like a character, like two characters that are just existing outside of society and they don't have to like spend time with all that. Like you're talking about all that nicety. And like when she first meets him, she's just like, what's wrong with your eye? Which I think it's just like, you know, like, I don't know what people wish they could say sometimes. Yeah. If you met somebody who had a sort of cloudy eye, like he has, you would know them for six months before you ever brought up the eye. Like, at yeah, least you would wait for them to, you would wait for them to bring up the eye. You know what I'm saying? You would have, you'd have to sort of trick them into it. You'd be like, yeah, like, you know, but yeah, of course. <laughs> oh, there's a lot of interesting, maybe I'm like projecting, but it seems like there's a lot of interesting gender stuff going on in the movie. Um, was that one of the intentions or did it just sort of grow out of the dialogue between these two people? Oh, as far as like, yeah, I had, I had thought about it. Um, I, I don't know to be honest. You mean like maybe it is like a, as like a feminist sort of critique or something like that. Like, I don't know. I was worried about, worried about that in the regard of like, I know people were like reviewing men that the Alex Harlan movies being like too yeah. kind of, I don't know, maybe too straightforward. I, maybe I haven't seen it. So I'm not, I'm not, yeah, saying, but I've seen people saying kind of, he's trying too hard. Yeah. Maybe I'm not trying hard enough. You know, I don't know. I, um, I'm, no, I, I honestly hadn't really like considered like gender to be the, like the, I don't know, the driving force in their, in the conflict between them. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. I thought there might be kind of like a macro thing going on with, you know, negative, we, like toxic masculinity gets overused but like a a not good man um sort of a bad relationship partner in the partner sense um, oh yeah 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 and maybe when she realizes that she loses whatever sympathy for him she had or may have had or maybe she never had sympathy for him which is another thing i like about it she could just be a spider with web for the whole movie yeah yeah i think yeah i think in my in my it's interesting because my conception of of what it is and what's happening keeps keeps changing as well Ooh. i think like regardless of of whether or not i don't know regardless of his gender i, I think that the people drawn to the farm have guilty souls mm. and she's the one who who judges them and like and sees straight through that so i think like in that conversation it's weird i'm like figuring figuring out my own movie but in that in that conversation Hit, he's sort of like dropping a hint to like his like his sort of very very checkered past to say it nicely and she's like she's examining that and weighing him in that moment I think there's some like really nice Greek term for that that I wish I could like like throw out but there's something about the, the weighing of, of souls and I sort of view her as that's like partially her um her you know um role in this like larger you know metaphysical farm oh. I, I totally love that. And that's, I don't want to overstep in my interpretation. Yeah. That feels like the feature, like the scariest thing isn't you go to this farm and a bad thing might happen to you. The scariest thing is somebody who really can judge you and whether you're a good person or not is yeah. quite scary. Like it, it's basically heaven and hell stuff. It's terrifying. Yeah. That's so terrifying. 
Oh, that's good. Wow. Uh, what do you call it? Does the feature have the same name or? Yeah, yeah, it's, all, it's also Skin and Bone. Can you talk about your experience at Emerson? Um, I, I'm not from Boston. I live in Boston now, but Emerson definitely seems like a huge creative force. And we have a writer who went to Emerson. Whenever I've worked with like interns from Emerson, they just seem like, I don't know, I think Harvard can handle this. They just seem like more creative and self-driven and more kind of just more exciting than Harvard people. <laughs> yeah. The, the Harvard and the MIT people have been like following, not all, but many of them have been following rules for a long time. And the Emerson people seem more like creative thinkers and free thinkers and rule breakers. Um, yeah. I mean, Daniels were, were there around the same time you were there, right? Yeah, I think they're, they're a couple years ahead of me. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, here's the thing. I, I really enjoyed Emerson because I have something to compare it to. I went to Drexel University in Philly for one year and huh? hated, just like, just had a terrible experience, you know? I think that the school just wasn't a good fit for me. So when I came to Emerson, it was just such like a a new experience. And like, I think the first thing I was struck with was that there was like a, just the student body, just creating work outside of the, you know, the, the class, you know, the the context of like the classes and the assignments and such that there was just this like equipment center and people were going in and checking out equipment and just shooting independent projects, which is like an an energy that I didn't really find at at Drexel uh, as much. So I think, I don't know, yeah, I think just, I mean, my, I think my Emerson experience is like pretty unique in that it just continued this sort of like artist loner thing that I, I had going on where they were like, hey, like, because I transferred in, they were like, hey, congratulations, like, welcome to Emerson. Sorry, you can't live on campus. So I lived like in Chinatown alone and like, you know, wore like a leather jacket and smoked cigarettes and like, and then all my, all the classes that I had were also with transfer students. So it's sort of like this kind of like culture of, of misfits that like couldn't hack it at their first college. So I think like I have a hard time because Emerson's such a small school and people like often go like, oh, do you know so-and-so? And I'll be like, I wish I knew so-and-so. Yeah, we went and saw everything everywhere all at once at that AMC there. And the audience was going bananas. And we were like, this movie's good, but people are losing their minds. And then I was like, oh, these are Emerson students. Oh, yeah. Like these are Emerson students cheering on like some of the most successful Emerson students. I totally get it now, um, yeah. but it is good. I just, I was just like, wow, I feel like I'm really part of something. I've never seen such an enthusiastic audience before. And like, oh, now I get it. Okay. This is cool. I wish, I wish I saw that movie in, in that type of like, you know, camaraderie. I, I saw it like at like midnight just with me and my sister. It's always weird. Like seeing a movie. I don't know. Like, I feel like every, every time I go to the movies, I'm like, here it is. Like, the big screen movie experience and I'm like alone in the theater. I'm like, I don't know if this is what it is. I feel like this is just as like, you know, isolating. Well, you've gotten to see your movie with audiences a couple times, right? Yeah. Yeah. How's the response been? It's been, it's been good. It's been good, man. I, I, when we saw it in Aspen was, was probably my favorite time. Cause the way that they, um, the way that they block, um, the way that they're like they're like they block their programming is that they're they're mixing in like narrative documentary um you know horror animation it's all sort of like combined so when it came to skin and bone people weren't really sure that it was a horror until the shot of the naked man cowering in the corner of the barn yeah you could just sort of feel this like palpable like uh just this terrible tremor like move through the audience and that was just like an, an amazing experience to me to remember that it was like this movie was created to make people feel something. Um, yeah, there's an awesome sense of menace up until then, but it could be a drama. You're not sure. 
yeah yeah you're like yeah you're like you know that things aren't good but at that moment it's sort of like that's like the the turning point for the audience so it's been interesting to like that as our first experience and then viewing it live with an audience and then going to other festivals and like feeling the way that the beats play out in in different ways with different audiences with different programming did you learn anything about the movie by watching with an audience did people laugh at stuff they were that you didn't expect them to laugh at or get freaked out by things you didn't expect them to be freaked out by first the laughter i was not expecting the laughter at all um yeah there's there's like a line where he says um she goes do you have someone somewhere and he goes yeah i had a wife um he goes what she goes what happened he goes i started hating her and <laughs> everyone laughs at that like the, every time um maybe what we were talking about earlier about maybe just like the the brutal honesty of it is like funny is like really funny to people um and that that scared me when, when they were laughing at that i was like oh no that's that's bad like i i messed up but it oh, kind of ends up, yeah i i think i don't think they're laughing at like this is funny or cer they're certainly not saying this is bad i think they're laughing at the audacity which yeah there's like i remember seeing hateful eight in a theater and laughing at like an expression of Samuel L. Jackson's and I'm not laughing because it's funny. I'm laughing because it's so ridiculous that he does. It's so audacious and daring of him to do that and for Tarantino to want him to do that yeah, yeah. Um, at that moment. And it's just, yeah, I think that's kind of the best laugh is the, is the, I can't believe they went there laugh. Yeah. Yeah. That and I also realized like, I think there's something about this, like the, if you can get them, the audience laughs, it's sort of like a release of tension. Yeah. And then the fear comes back, you know? Yeah. It's almost like a weird experience for me that like watching the movie, there's like a ball of tension that's just sort of like moving around the theater and it has to come out in certain places. And it seems like that's the natural place. Like there, maybe there hasn't been like a quote unquote scare for like three minutes. So everyone yeah. like laughs at that audacity. And then it's right back to like, you know, please slaughter the animals to free the souls of the men, you know? Oh my God. Wow. <laughs> so, I know that was another experience I had too, is like watching it in a theater. I was like, man, I hope people like know that like, I'm, I'm actually like pretty well adjusted. Like, I'm like, a, I'm like a happy, like go lucky guy. Well, I don't know. I'm not happy go lucky, but you know. No, you got to have a movie in a, you got to have a moment in a horror movie where you go, did the person who make this, is, is the person who made this an evil, awful person? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That moment like that. Yeah to buy into the movie because if you know everything's going to be okay it's not a scary movie yeah like yeah um what's the ultimate objective i mean obviously get this made into a feature um i'm yeah. sure you have some other feature ideas um what do you what do you why do you want to be a filmmaker man that is that's a really good question that i don't think i've ever answered um i guess honestly at least i think like i don't know man i, I think that there's just like it's just the way that I've chosen to navigate my, my life, whatever experience that I have over the course of, of my life is just going to end up getting like funneled through this thing, through yeah. these stories, um, which makes me like feel a lot of comfort in a way that like, um, I don't know, like some of the, some of the negative or like um, traumatic experiences that have, that have gone through my life that that stuff won't ever really get stuck inside of me, that it'll just end up being like inevitably released through this. Yeah. So I think like maybe it's a two-pronged thing, I guess like saying like that feels like 
a little bit like inherently selfish. Like I'm just doing this as some sort of like form of catharsis or therapy, but to be able to like communicate an experience and then have like an audience or, or whatever, like come back and, and be able to like share that with me. Did you grow up in Massachusetts where you Cape Cod or where were you? Yeah. Yeah. Cape Cod, Mass. Yeah. See, I always think of Cape Cod as like the place where people go on vacation and nothing bad ever happens there. Yeah. Um, and then I hear about like these gritty Cape Cod stories and like yeah. opioid addiction and stuff. What, what was that like? What was it like growing up there? <sighs> I mean i think like at the time it seemed like really like idyllic and 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 normal like any, anyone else's like suburban childhood but in retrospect i think like i don't know there's i think there's like an extreme element of it as well like the just the sort of this nature of like that in the summer it takes on this kind of like i don't know like it's like disneyland it's like like you know ken like the the disneyland for kennedy's or whatever like you it's come like there mini, mini golf every 50 feet ice cream lobster rolls yeah. yeah it's like tourists tourist yeah tourist yeah. heaven and the population expands like times four and then all of a sudden you know the off season comes and people disappear and it becomes like more extreme and like the characters in my mind like maybe i'm romanticizing it but the characters that exist on cape cod in the off season are people that can like withstand the cold and the isolation and like the this kind of like weird sandbar Mm -hmm. lifestyle um mm -hmm. so i think like that i don't know i think like for me maybe it just was also like uh i don't know opportunity to like i mean i grew up like next to nickerson state park and i feel like my like my backyard was the woods so i think it was also like you know my childhood is also like goes hand in hand with like uh i don't know like exploration of, of nature and like finding myself and like um I don't know, just like a real like affinity with the with the natural world. I went to the the Cape Cod Lighthouse Charter School, which is sort of like an alternative, um, uh, I don't know, learning environment where like we do seminars like picking up trash on the beach. Yeah. So I think like the natural world was like very much a part of it. Um, as far as like you, you like sort of reference like the the opioid epidemic and all these like sort of like gritty experiences. That that was never my experience. I think like in my mind, like any like quote unquote like you know bad shit I've been through in my life is sort of like after having left like the safety of the harbor 